there's a delightful little book, a little poem, a little uh, show circuit, talking about everything I ever learned, everything I ever needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. You're familiar with some of this, these aphorisms, this wisdom, but everything you learned, you learned in kindergarten. Do you realize what bad advice that is? You realize how much you have learned after kindergarten. As a matter of fact, um, I have probably learned oodles, that's a technical term, more since I've been done with school. I mean, you think about, it's, it's different, it's different kind of learning. It's, it's book learning. Um, you know, you might not use that advanced uh, trigonometry as a literature professor, you know, uh, much to my wife's chagrin, making fun of math. Um, <clears throat> but there, you learn a lot, and it's a, it's a different kind. It's wisdom, it's practical. You learn a new job, you move to a new neighborhood, you meet new neighbors, you're around new people, you learn all kinds of things. Now, the challenge is once some people finish high school, anything that has the word school associated with it, they're not interested in, even if it's Sunday school, because it's got that dreaded word school in it. I don't want anything to do with it. And yet we all know that you've probably learned volumes more, especially the older you are. You've learned a lot more since school than you ever learned in school. That's not to denigrate school. It's just that wisdom is a phenomenal teacher. And yet we still have this catchphrase in society that says that you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. Now, here's a hint. We're not talking about canines at all. We're talking about people, which I don't think is very nice to call someone a dog. Um, but <laughs> we have this phrase that you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. I don't know about that. Um, all of my dogs were trained before they got old, unless you went to my current dog. My current dog was a rescue, and I don't know what his previous owners did to him, but he didn't come with any brains, and so he's about impossible to train. It, I, it is the most frustrating thing. I've trained dogs in the past. Lewis is adamantly opposed to any kind of training, and he, he proved that in our living room last night. Um, so what are you doing? You know, it's not, it shouldn't be like that. And so when do you stop learning? You know, when you hit your 20s, you're done with high school, and then maybe by 22, if you've been on the right track, you're graduating from college, you stop learning in your 20s? You stop learning in your 30s, 50s, 60s, 70s? No, you stop learning when you die. You stop learning, you have, you have begun the artificial death process. And so one of the things that I love, going through this series on last words, everyone's last words up to this point, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, have been dealing with their biological family. Abraham and Isaac, please don't let my son marry a pagan girl. I don't want his heart turned away towards other gods. Uh, Jacob giving a blessing to his family in Genesis 49. Joseph kind of pulling back the veil on this divine drama of his brothers selling him into slavery. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. It's all about family. Yet when we get to Moses, um, if, if we had a trivia question on what was Moses' wife's name, anybody know it? Zipporah. We don't know much about Moses' family. He had one. He had sons. He had, he had, he had a wife. Um, there's not much about his family, and that's not because they're not important. When Moses gets to the end of his life, he addresses something that I think most of us will appreciate. Not his biological family, but his, his faith family. His other forever family. And here's what happens for Moses. He gets to the conclusion of his life. And he realizes that there are more lessons to learn at the conclusion of your time in the spotlight. 
God is saying, all right, it is time for you to shift. You have been the, the leader, and you're going to die. What lessons are there for you to learn? And what we observe from Moses' life and from Moses' testimony, words from his lips, show some important things that God reminds him of, and then that he turns around to remind the people that he has been given charge for leadership. So these are last words that are a little bit different. It's a massive portion of scripture, Deuteronomy 31 through 34. And we're going to just look at some vignettes, at, at what God was teaching to Moses and through Moses in his last words. So if you'll join me, Deuteronomy 31 is where we're going to start. We're going to flip all over the place. So pay attention to the words on the screen or be ready to scroll, flip, whatever in your book, phone, contraption, device, Word of God. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Moses continued to speak these words to all of Israel. He said to them, I'm 120 years old today. I'm no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself will go over before you, and he will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them. And Joshua, he will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorites, and to their land when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be in fear or in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. Here's the background. Moses has been leading uh, the people of Israel. You, you've seen the movie, the Prince of Egypt. He got them out, delivered them, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they are on the edge of going into the promised land. And God goes, wait, wait, time out, time out, time out. Calling the bullpen. You're going to the bench. You're not the leader anymore. Why is Moses not the leader anymore? Well, he gives, us, he gives us the kinder, gentler answer, and Scripture gives us the fuller, more complete answer. Number one, he's old. He said he's 120 years old. Then he says, I don't come out and go in quite like I used to. When I'm up, I'm okay. When I'm down, I'm okay. But I want to stay in one of those two positions and not transition anymore. Joints just don't work well. Back kind of hurts. Knees they pop, they crack, they sound like Rice Krispies. You know, there's something going on there. Snap, pop, crackle, pop. I don't like it. He's old. But there's, there's another testimony to just, hey, I've done it for a long time. It's that he's a sinner. Loved, cherished, and incredible leader. But the very first lesson that God has for Moses at the end of his leadership is, hey, Moses, I'm proud of you. That thing with the staff and the snake, whoa. Parting the Red Sea so the people can walk through it. I know it was my power, but, you know, Charlton Heston, he, you know, boom, sea parts, great. You did, you did good. But I've got to remind you that you're a sinner. My first point is this, that there is a frighteningly, <clears throat> frighteningly incredible power to our corruption. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So to substantiate this point, look at the end of chapter 32. Flip over a page or two. The words will be on, your sc on the screen here. <clears throat> chapter 32, verses 48 through 52. Here's what the Bible has to say about this. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses. Go up this mountain of the Abarim. 
Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite of Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession. And die on that mountain which you go up and be gathered to your people. Why is he about to die? Because you broke faith with me in the midst of all the people of Israel. You did it publicly at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. And because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. Moses had been uh, given the, the status, the privilege, the responsibility of being a leader. Uh, it was not a fun ministry assignment because they basically did donuts in the desert, you know, just running in circles. And uh, the people, of course, would complain about his leadership, even though Moses was going exactly where the, the pillar of the cloud God was telling him to go. Of course, in our desert, there's not a lot of provision. There's no supermarkets. There's not a lot of food. There's no water. People are complaining because they need something to drink. And so Moses says, or God says to Moses, hey, see that big rock over there? I want you to go talk to the rock, okay? Sometimes on Sunday morning, I, I know what that feels like. Um, just saying, you know, um, if the coffee hasn't kicked in, I know what it feels like to talk to rocks sometimes. Go talk to the rock and tell it to give forth water. Well, what does Moses do? Numbers chapter 20, he goes over, he takes his staff and he beats the heck out of the rock. Strikes it twice, it says. The problem is God didn't say, strike the rock. He said, speak to the rock. Well, you know, hey, speaking, striking, it's water from a rock after all. Isn't that pretty? No, no, no. You did not treat me as holy because you made it look like it was your effort striking the rock that cracked it open and brought it. It's a lot more miraculous to speak to a rock and for water to come out than for you to beat the heck out of it and then for this to happen. And so he's, he's highlighting the fact that Moses, Mo, you were... You were so faithful. But even in your faithfulness, you're still corrupted by the power of sin. And it's not just Moses that needs to be reminded of his corruption. It's the people of Israel. Back in chapter 31, verses 16 through 22, it goes on and it says all kinds of just terrible things about the, about the people. <coughs> the, Moses is in the process of handing off leadership to Joseph. Verse 3, he's already reminded the people, I'm not going, Joshua's going to do it. In the process of commissioning um, Joshua, Moses and Joshua go to the tent, God comes down on the pillar, and God speaks to Moses, and this is the conversation Joshua gets to overhear. Verse, chapter 31, verses 16 through 22. The Lord said to Moses, Joshua's over here, God's speaking to Moses, Behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers, and then this people will rise, and they will whore this people, uh, whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them, and then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them. <coughs> and they will be devoured. Many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and once they have eaten and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. 
when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I have brought them into the land that I swore to give them. So in chapter 32, Moses writes this song, and this entire song is recounting God's glorious deeds and delivering them, but the people's utter faithlessness and God's utter faithfulness. Puts it into uh, a song, kind of like seeds, puts scripture to music so it's easier to remember. God commissions Moses to write this song so that in future generations, when God is having to punish his people, they hear this little dirge saying, yeah, God said he was going to do that. Yeah, that's why life stinks. We're experiencing that right now. It lives on as a witness. Our corruption is complete and total. And, and, and it's, it's interesting. You sit there and you go, if God is commissioning Joshua to be the leader, why is God speaking to Moses and allowing Joshua to hear it? I think just practically from a leadership perspective, there's two things. Number one, Moses has this great resume, right? You know, he's like Fortune 500, incredible guy. He's sustained these millions of people in the desert. He's terrible with directions, needs some help with GPS. But other than that, he's been great, you know. He's been a good shepherd. He's taken care of folks. And he says, hey, listen, Moses, before your head gets too big, let me just tell you what's going to happen. These people that you're so proud of, this, this nation that you've taken care of, your funeral's not even going to be over before they start prostituting themselves to foreign gods. Takes Moses down just a little bit. Give him a little bit of humility. Hey, Joshua, I know you're a young guy. And listen, when you're 120 years old, everybody's young. Joshua's probably 40, 45. Um, I'm glad to hear that that's a young man. Um, that's, that's great news. Forty-something, <laughs> he's a young man. Hey, young man, I know you're so excited about this leadership opportunity. Let me show you what you've inherited. This unfaithful people took Joshua down just a little bit. Moses tempted to let his peacock feathers come out. Look at all that, all that I've done. Reminded of human depravity. Joshua, really excited, ready to let his peacock feathers out. Man, I, I get to be the new leader. Making Israel great again, you know? Let's just remind you kind of what you've inherited. Sinful people like yourself. The truth is, if we could for a second have God pull back whatever veil is over our eyes and talk about our conception of holiness, your conception of holiness and my conception of holiness is not even worthy of the God that we profess to serve. You know what our version of holiness is? I'm better than that guy. I'm not as bad as that fellow. And what is the standard of our holiness? It is the Lord Jesus himself. No wonder why we compare ourselves against others, because it's a humbling thing to compare ourselves against the sinless perfection of Christ. Yet that's the standard, not your drunk neighbor. Our conceptions of holiness are not very dignified when it comes to God's conception of our sin and what holiness really is like. So Moses, in this final chapter, is reminded of his corruption. Number two, we see God's great work among us corporately as a people requires serious continuity. Um, John Maxwell is a uh, leadership speaker, and uh, I don't remember much, much of what he says because it's all kind of glorified common sense, but he did say one thing that has stuck with me forever. There is no success without a successor. 
Like if you're a leader and you give your life to an institution, guess what happens when you, when you die or you leave? Everything gets undone. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, there is no continuity. See, this happen in church like all the time. Pastor comes in, says, hey, the thing that we need to go to the next level, we need a, we need a, a five-day-a-week preschool. So church goes, preschool? Wow, didn't think about that. So church starts a preschool. That pastor dies or leaves. Next guy comes in and says, man, what we need to take us to the next level is a soup kitchen. Soup kitchen? Yeah, well, let's all do it. So what happens to the church? It accumulates all these other ministries that nobody else has a passion for running. And you know that once you start a ministry at a church, you're not allowed to ever stop doing it until Jesus comes back. So you have a bunch of passionless people doing something that a pastor told them to do that was his pet project, but it certainly wasn't the pet project of the people of God. And there's no continuity. And so it's kind of, we don't have an identity. We don't know what we want to do. Somebody's going to tell us and we're going to do all this crazy stuff. Moses knew that for God's work to continue, there needed to be continuity. Joshua's a young guy. He's going to bring a different perspective. He's going to bring some new stuff, but he kind of needed to be integrated into what had already happened. So we see Moses kind of warming the people up to this idea that there's going to be a a new leader and it's not going to be Moses. Verse 3 He's already told the people, I'm not going. Uh, Joshua's going at the head. Verses 7 through 8, uh, Moses introduces them to the people. It says this, that Moses summoned Joshua, and he said to him, in the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. The Lord goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Joshua is, uh, Moses is officially endorsing him and identifying with him by saying, hey, I know I'm on the stage, Joshua, come up here with me, all right? You're responsible for these people. Don't be scared. God will empower you to do what you're supposed to do. And he does this publicly in front of people. Um, Moses then presents him to the Lord, verses 14 and 15, the same chapter. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, behold, The days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting that I may commission him. That would have been a really cool commissioning service to go to. God himself. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting, and the Lord appeared in a pillar of cloud. The Lord himself commissions him. And it's here that Joshua hears that warning that he gives to Moses, verses 16 through 22, about how bad the people are going to be almost as soon as Joshua dies. Finally, in verse 23, God speaks directly to Joshua, same way he did with Moses. The Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said to him, Be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. You hear this phrase, be strong and courageous, given to the people of Israel. Why why does he need to give it to the people of Israel? Because there's a transition coming up, and people freak out when there's a transition. I don't know, some of you were probably not alive when the year 2000 hit. There was a transition from the 1,000s number to the 2,000s number. And didn't you know all the computers were going to die? Planes were going to crash to the ground. Water was going to stop running. You weren't going to be able to get gasoline. Grocery stores were going to close down because it was a transition. Everybody run around like crazy. (coughs) It happens in every institution. When there is a transition, whether it's little, whether it's big, people freak out. So there's continuity, and God is trying to warn the people, be strong, courage, don't worry, I'm still God. Moses says it to Joshua. God says it to Joshua to strengthen him and to encourage him. And so this continuity is important. He needs to know what Moses is doing. He's shadowed him and is being handed off to him. Moses' sin had disqualified him from being the leader 
to take them into the promised land. New situation requires a new leader. And by the way, this new leader, his name is Joshua. Yeshua. Jesus. Jesus, Joshua, same name. It's just a matter of how things are transliterated in Hebrew. Very interesting. Joshua becomes this foreshadowing of Christ himself. So the leadership is being handed off. Moses has been reminded of his corruption. He's been reminded of how important it is to hand off healthy leadership for there to be continuity. Moses now knows it's time for him to kind of utter his last words, to give his greatest encouragements. And so we see Moses doing something that we need to be reminded of. Number three, we must pass on important commitments to the next generation. We must pass on important commitments to the next generation. We don't want them to die with us. Look at verses 9 through 13 of chapter 31. <coughs> so Moses wrote this law. What's this law? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a collection of Moses' sermons. Um, he's getting done, and it's, it's, it, it finishes with this narration in verses, uh, 31 through, or chapters 31 through 34. Moses finished write, finishes writing it. And he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And he gave it to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that he will choose. You shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, little ones, and even the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. Moses writes it down, gives it to the Levites who carry the ark. He says, I want you to do this. At the Feast of Booths, that happens every seven years. It's the year of release. Debts were forgiven. Um, land that was borrowed goes back to its original owners. It's kind of like everybody gets a do-over. When the Feast of Booth hap- happens annually, it was typically just the men who would go. But every seven years, it's everyone. It's men, women, boys, girls, even foreigners that live among you, read the law. Moses is issuing this commitment to the entire nation, to everyone. This is a uh, proclamation, state of the union, whatever you want to call it. He says it to all the people. You go down just a few verses to verses 24 through 29, Moses addresses this commitment to the leaders specifically. It's going to sound very similar. Trust me, it's later in the chapter, verses 24 through 29. When Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I might speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil will befall you because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the work of your hands. He's saying, guys, guys, all right, let's take a knee. All y'all, we have to obey this law. All right, everybody in, break. All right, deacons, Sunday school teachers, children's workers, youth workers, up here. It is your responsibility to encourage and make sure that we all obey. Because if leadership doesn't encourage it, there will be no accountability, 
This is a team effort. He is trying to say everyone who is involved, from leader to follower, we've got to pass these commitments to be obedient to the Lord. We need to teach by example, leaders. We need to teach by education. You need to tell them, and you need to show them. And so he says there are witnesses. He uses legal terminology. Uh, It said earlier, hey, this song is going to live on for generations in the lips of your children. The song will be a witness of God's faithfulness, your unfaithfulness. Heaven and earth are being called as witnesses because heaven and earth will witness everything that you do that is contrary to God's will. And the law is being placed in the Ark of the Covenant as a witness against you. The song is, uh, is interesting. Chapter 32 is all of the song, um, 43 verses. And uh, in it, he basically says, in poetic fashion, all of the ways that God's people will be creatively unfaithful in the very simple and consistent ways in which God will always be faithful. Great contrast. And he concludes that in verses 44 through 47 of chapter, chapter uh, 32. I want you to hear Moses's um, commentary on his own song. He, he kind of he goes, goes out as a crooner, putting a, a theological song reminding us of our importance to be obedient to God. Verse 44, he, uh, he, he concludes, Moses came and he recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all of Israel, he said to them, here, here it is, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. By this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. He goes, guys, this is not empty words. This is not an idle word. Your future blessing or disaster is set before you in your own obedience. If you obey God, things will go well for you. If you don't, they won't. There's a commitment that we have to make here, and Moses is adamant to make sure that people get it. Fourteen times in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses urges God's people to remember. Don't forget. Don't forget. Remember. Remember how God has delivered you. Remember God's faithful provision. Remember that God is warning you. Remember that God will never leave you or forsake you. Thirty times we're told to hear. Listen. Pay attention. Don't, don't let it go in one ear and out the other. Over 100 times in Deuteronomy, we're told to do. Remember, here, do, do this. Don't do this. Obey the Lord. Follow Him. Moses is intent in his almost dying breath to say, all right, I recognize my corruption. I know how important it is to pass on continuity of leadership. I am pressing on people with all of the energy that I have, the importance of these commitments. And yet, when we come to the fourth and final point, we see something that is so precious. You don't need to be in the last chapter of your life to appreciate these first three points. The importance of understanding the corruption that remains in your own breast and in your own mind. Um, The the importance of, of good leadership. I mean, you have people that are pointing the direction for you. You have Sunday school teachers, mentors, um, neighbors who know the Lord, pastors and teachers who are providing continuity between what God says and what what living life is like. We can appreciate the importance of passing on these commitments. Who wants to see their kids faithless? No one. 
You want to see your kids faithful to the same things that you are faithful for. But when we get to point four, I think that this is something peculiar and particular to Moses in his old age as he is about to die. Everything that you have heard Moses, everything that has been said in chapters 31 through 34 about Israel is not good. Like, I think if we could bundle up everything from Moses' sermon and the commissioning of Joshua and these commitments and about how the people are going to prostitute themselves after the gods and they're going to do evil, and they've done evil while Moses is there, they can't wait for him to die because then there's less restraint. The, the sheriff is gone. When the, the cat's away, the mouse will play kind of thing. He's saying this is going to happen. Everything you've heard has been bad. And yet when we get to this fourth and final point, Moses says something in his, his dying breath that is something that we need to learn, and it's uh, learning this, that we must celebrate those things we cannot see with our eyes. How do you see without your eyes? You see by faith. And God gives Moses the opportunity to see what Israel will be like beyond their disobedience. So in chapter 33, at the very end of the chapter, Moses offers in chapter 33 his blessings. Kind of like Jacob blessed all the sons of Israel. Moses goes through and in verses 1 through 5 recounts God's glorious deeds in delivering them from Egypt. And God is, God is awesome. He's incredible. Here's particular blessings to the different tribes. Verses 26 through 29 is his final blessing. And I want you to hear what he says in verses 26 through 29. There is none like God. Oh, Jeshurun. Jeshurun is an affectionate name for Israel. There is none like God, oh, Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to help you, who rides through the skies in majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He has thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety and Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. The shield of your help and the sword of your triumph, your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. This does not sound like the Israel we have been talking about in verses 31 through, chapters 31 through 34. And yet God gives Moses to see that God will win in the end. Man's sin will try to throw up as many obstacles and side trails and tangents. But God wins in the end. And Moses says, how great is the God that we have the opportunity to serve. That can conquer our sin and our latent laziness. And so it's crazy and incredible to see this when we consider all of the unfaithfulness that has just been predicted. God enabled him to see beyond the sin of people to the victory of God. And the truth today is that God is still in the process of giving victory to his people. And it's not in kind of what I think maybe characterizes the sermon at this point, kind of a, a moralism, like watch out for sin, be a good leader, make the right commitments. There is no do better and God will, God will like you. You have done the best that you can and it's not good enough. So it's not moralism in which we find the victory. It, it's, it's something else. And that's not to mitigate the example of Moses. As a matter of fact, chapter 34 gives us the epitaph of, of Moses and he is a leader extraordinaire. Chapter 34, verses 4 through 8. 
says this, And the Lord said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And God buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. And then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. I'll skip down verses uh, 10 through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all of Israel. Moses was a great leader. God says, well done, good and faithful servant. And yet the point, what we can learn from the example of Moses The point of the sermon is not, hey, y'all, go be little Mo's. Be like Moses. No, because that is a sentence of death. And so we know that while God used Moses to deliver his people in the promised land, which you have to understand in the timeline of how the Bible talks about things, God created a garden that was very good for his people to dwell in. And because of our sin, God had to kick us out and put a guard at the door so we could never go back in. You go to the state fair, you go to, um, you go to the, the well, what's the theme park? <coughs> you go to Carowinds, and you need to leave because you forgot something in your car. They put the little UV stamp so you can get back in. You are granted reentry. There is no reentry into the garden. Angel with a flaming sword. And yet God, through Moses, brings them out of a land of oppression into a land flowing with milk and honey. It sounds awfully like a garden. This time, God, was, God had been the one kicking out and stationing a guard. God is now the one who is fighting and dispossessing the people so that his people can come into God's good place, the promised land. The point in all this is that the promised land is not the point. Uh, what Israel is today versus what it was in the Bible time, we're not even going to get into a discussion about how those are two completely separate entities. The point is this. Moses was not an end in himself. He was simply a sign marker of God's great highway. Because while Moses dies here, we see Moses on another mountain centuries later in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Jesus takes his disciples and takes his inner circle, um, James and John and Peter, and he goes up on the mountain and he kind of, he does the Cam Newton. You know, he pulls, pulls the veil back so that people can see not God in flesh, but God in glory. Jesus is transfigured in front of them, and it's, it's incredible. The disciples are like, whoa, mouth drop, mic drop, freak out, lay dead. Um, and guess who shows up with Jesus in his transfigured glory? Elijah and Moses discussing what? The impending mystery and glory of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. The one who says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus died to bring us into God's greater promised land. His eternal kingdom. The kingdom of his son. Because the point in all of this 
is even great believers need a Savior. So if you don't think of yourself as a great leader, guess what? You need a Savior too. I need a Savior too. And the point of all of this is that Moses needed to be reminded of his need for a Savior because of his corruption. The need for leadership because people are sinners. Leaders are sinners. The importance of holding people accountable to commandments because we're sinners. But celebrating that our sin never wins because the victory that we have is not in a geopolitical land. It's in that other side of the metaphorical Jordan when we spend eternity with God on the basis of faith in Christ, His Son, who died to give us eternal life. Pray for me, please. Father, I pray that you drive these lessons deep into our heart. We are such a proud people, and it is so easy for us to just go through life on our own, not really thinking through what really matters. I pray today that you will remind us of just the heinousness of sin and just our absolute and total dependence upon you. We thank you for the example of Moses, who was a a faithful man, a man nonetheless, but a faithful man through whom you did great things. And Father, we pray that you would help us to aspire to great things for you. You are worthy of them. Uh, We are so bound for seeking our own glory. God, may you please give us a taste for the glory of God. We pray that we will honor you in that by trusting you for the forgiveness of our sins if we have not done that yet. And for those of us who have, that you would help us to encourage others on to love and to good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.